Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. I've, I've got something a little embarrassing to, to admit. When I began the Al Franken podcast four years ago, I very quickly adopted my, my opening hook. We've got a great one today, you know, for a change. Um, I was almost always lying because uh, for the first three and a half seasons, this podcast was just uniformly dreadful. And I knew I had to add for a change just to buy some credibility because people would think, well, not one of these has been good, but maybe finally this time he's got something worth listening to. And that carried me for almost three and a half seasons. But, and and I have to be honest with you here, a number of the shows started to be good. But for a change, still seemed fair. I said to myself, as long as I don't do two in a row that are good, I can hold my head up and say, we got a good one today, you know, for a change, and still feel like I'm being honest with you. Then it happened. I did two good shows in a row. Two weeks ago, I had Dahlia Lithwick on her fabulous new book, Lady Justice, now a New York Times bestseller, thanks to me. And then Sarah Silverman last week does an amazing show. The, these shows weren't just good. They were, well, great, both, both of them. So now I'm thinking, well, at least the next one is going to be bad. And for a change, we'll still achieve uh, its purpose, which is for you, the listeners, to think, yes, they're usually not worth listening to, but this one might be good for a change. Well, wouldn't you know it? This one today is also great. It's getting embarrassing. I mean, even The Daily doesn't do three great shows in a row, and they have the resources of The New York Times. All I have is Peter. That's right. It's it's actually kind of pathetic. Yeah. Well, we only do one show a week. Yeah, there, there's that, but it's not like I'm full time. You know, this podcast just gets a very small part of my attention. Exactly. And yet somehow we've managed to string three great shows together. Well, that's because we had Dahlia Lithwick and then Sarah Silverman. And, and now we have Tim Miller, who is fantastic. Yep, that was my mistake. Tim is great. This show you're about to listen to is fabulous. You know, I could have guessed that because I've seen him do commentary on MSNBC, and he's always really, really good. And you told me his book, Why We Did It, is a really interesting look at the greed and moral turpitude of the Republican political class in D.C. It is, and, and, and it's an amazingly honest book. Tim doesn't spare himself. Let, let me explain. 
Tim was a longtime Republican campaign operative. He worked for John McCain in 08, uh, for Mitt Romney in 12, for Jeb Bush in 16. But once Jeb was out, Tim did everything he could in that cycle to make sure that Donald Trump did not become president. He failed, of course. But unlike so many Republican operatives who knew that Trump was bad news, Tim remained a never-Trumper. But in why we did it, Tim doesn't take himself off the hook. Uh, The first sentence in his book is, America never would have gotten into this mess if it weren't for me and my friends. Now, Tim is gay, and yet... After Romney lost in 2012, Tim went to work for Ken Cuccinelli, who was running for governor in Virginia. Terrible, terrible person. Terrible. Ken Cuccinelli is one of the most awful right-wing, anti-immigrant, homophobic politicians of our time. But Tim was a Republican political operative, and he needed a job. Disgrace. Yes, that Tim took that job, and yet he is brutally honest about it, and and that's why this book is great. And and this show, unfortunately, our third great one in a row. And, And here's the most shocking part, I think, is that even after the 2016 election, where he had gone out on a limb and very publicly done everything he could to prevent Trump from winning, He then went on to take a very well-paying job sliming Mm -hmm. Democrats and one helping prepare Scott Pruitt, the terrible, terrible anti-environmental attorney general of Oklahoma for his confirmation to be the director of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Could not have found a worse guy for the job. But because of that, Tim brings an understanding of how the D.C. Republican operatives who knew better how those morally compromised goons went down the path of working for and enabling Trump and why we did it is that story. And it is not just honest, it's funny. He's a funny writer. He's a funny guy and a very good guy. One of the rare people in that DC culture who will acknowledge that, yes, he did some things for the wrong reason. And who among us hasn't? Except you, of course. Well, thank you, Peter. Before we get to our our third great one in a row, I wanted to look at a couple things in in the news. Uh, Vladimir Putin. Kind of turns out that Tucker Carlson was was wrong. As you remember, the day before Russia invaded Ukraine, Tucker Carlson did this rant on Democrats say we should hate Putin, but why? Has Putin called me a racist? Has he shipped all our middle-class jobs from my hometown to Russia? Has Putin tried to cancel Christmas? And Tucker's Tucker's right. Putin hasn't done any of that stuff, and yet I hate Tucker. But what has Tucker done? Has he targeted civilians with cluster bombs? No. Has Tucker given medals to Russian soldiers who have committed atrocities? No. Has he hit children's hospitals and, and maternity wards with with huge blockbuster bombs? No. Tucker hasn't done any of that, and yet I just so hate Tucker. Now, Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons. Now, I have a theory. When you're threatening to use nuclear weapons, it's only because you think 
you're in a weak position. As a uh, U.S. senator, I was privy to some classified intelligence and a logic class. So, the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers are on trial for seditious conspiracy. Frankly, I think this is uh, kind of a slam dunk case because the Oath Keepers' oath is, I will conspire to commit sedition. That is a tough case. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, yesterday, Rhodes, he's the head of the Oath Keepers, is on trial. His attorney told the jurors that they will see evidence that will show that the defendants, this is a quote, had no part in the bulk of the violence (laughs) that occurred on January 6th. That's their defense. Oh, sure, we committed quite a lot of violence but nowhere near the bulk of it. Did you see how many other people were committing violence? I move this case be dismissed. Okay, midterms are coming up. Uh, Get out on the doors, door knock, phone bank. Our democracy is at stake because the Republican Party has stopped participating in good faith in our democratic process. Our democracy is at stake in November. And speaking of the midterms, I'll be doing my first podcast live in front of an audience on Wednesday, November 2nd at 7.30 p.m. in New York City. It's at the City Winery in Manhattan. My special guest is David Axelrod, and uh, we'll be talking midterms. We also have another special guest who we will announce a future uh, date in the near future. So if you're in the New York area or have ever considered visiting New York City, uh, November 2nd, my first podcast live in front of an audience. Okay, and now a great one. Tim Miller, a former Republican operative, now works with Bulwark, with Bill Kristol, Charlie Sykes, two other former Republicans, I think they are, who are every bit as alarmed by what has happened to the party of Lincoln and Strom Thurmond. It's a great one and a funny one, you know, for a change. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen, that's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Führer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com slash franken rules and restrictions may apply this episode is brought to you in part by audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales 
Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is a very refreshing book. You know, I, I, I read these books and, and I, I read Chris Christie's book. And I, when I saw him, I said to him, you know who comes off really well in your book? You. <laughs> and and the thing is, is that you don't come off so great in many ways uh, because it's like an honest book. <laughs> that's exactly what I. That, thank you, Al. I was waiting. I was waiting for a little more praise there, but yeah, thank you. Um, I my goal in writing the book, um, you know, besides you know getting at answering the question of why people who knew better uh, went along with Trump, uh, was to just be completely honest about myself, not pull punches, and also not have it be homework. Those were the two main goals I had in drafting it. So I appreciate that I hit at least one of them. I got this book about six weeks ago and I read it then and um, really enjoyed it. And uh, it's very self-confessional. But I, you know, and uh, I want to get into a lot of a lot of stuff here. I really feel that the Trump thing uh, that we got here starting a long time ago yeah. and really with Gingrich and with Rush Limbaugh. That I wrote a book called Rush Limbaugh's a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations <laughs> at the time. And what I saw was that uh, a lot of this disinformation that was, it was dangerous. And I don't know where that's gone uh, since then. Uh, and Newt, remember he put out this thing, Learn to Talk Like Newt? You remember that thing? <laughs> that, that one I must have missed, actually. I have a lot of Newt memories, but I don't well, remember. Well, he put out a, a list of words for uh, Republican candidates to oh, use. Oh, right. The Lunts. The Lunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Decay, yeah. traitors, mm-hmm. sick, that kind of stuff. Yeah. To me, there's a straight line between that and Trump. And along the way, uh, the Republican Party, with some, some detours and curves, just inexorably went this way, in my mind. Until we have Trump and we have Trumpism and we have something that to me is almost neo-fascist. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I, I tried to not write history because A, I'm youthful. Um, I'm a youthful 40 and I'm not a historian. And uh, and I think other people have written that. Stuart Stevens, I don't know if he's been on the podcast, wrote yeah, he a history said, uh, book. It was all a lie. Right? Yeah, and his book was really good. And it was a history book, goes back to Goldwater. And, uh, and others have obviously written about this. I wanted to only talk about stuff I saw firsthand, um, mm-hmm. which basically starts in the McCain. So I started the McCain-Palin campaign of, uh, of 08, uh, where, where I worked for Senator oh, McCain. Palin was a, extent, a part of that. Too, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I basically start this line. And I think that no doubt you can start this line back at Newt or Goldwater or Mark Hanna. You can start it wherever you want. But what I try to try to focus on is the first hand. And in 07, the book starts with the crowds that came to the McCain events. And, you know, it was this sort of proto deplorables, right? Uh, you know, there's the famous example of McCain, you know, telling the woman that, that President nope. Obama is not exactly a nope. secret Muslim. You know, you see this bifurcation in the events, actually, when Palin comes on the ticket where her events are like these monster truck rallies and, you know, McCain is holding these more staid events. And, and I think that there's there's something important in that, you know, and it's why I start there. And that on the one hand, 
we should have all seen this coming. Many of us did see this coming who are, who are on the McCain side of this divide, right? And, and we rationalized it. We rationalized collaborating with the people on the Palin side of the divide. But it's also important to just note that leadership actually does matter, right? And, and having somebody at the top of the ticket that was not, you know, baby birding all of these people's grievances and conspiracies that they learned about on Rush and you know, on darker corners of the web uh, from Rush uh, right back to them like Palin wanted to do, having somebody at the top of the ticket that was, that was you know, a, at times at least, maybe not often enough, giving them some medicine, you know, matters and it, it prevents things from spiraling out of control. And so, I think you can kind of have both those thoughts together in your head, right? Which is that there was always an element of this. It was, it was inexorably growing, as you said. And at the same time, like there were people that were acting you know, varying degrees of more responsibly than others. And I think those of us who were who kind of lived through all of that, we try to grapple with that. Like, what was our complicity? How was I a collaborator with this? But then also, are there, were there good elements? That, you know, was there any truth to it? Was there any good elements that, that, you know, we can still tease back out? And so, I think that's why the book is kind of half you know, this 08 to 16 period and, and me looking back at the ways that I collaborated with it and the ways that I regret the growing kind of Trumpist movement. And then the, the second half is, is then what, you know, how, when people face the choice of whether to go along with something that was manifestly dangerous, manifestly bigoted and cruel, you know, why did they do what they did? And this is really, uh, this book is about the DC political class yeah. Yeah. and about how everyone, about their complicity and to some extent yours, you write about, and that's why I'm saying what I liked about this book is that you are very self-critical, and and I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate that you have written this book and that you're very outspoken. And you're one of the founders of um, uh, Bill Crystal's. Um, what is it? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. Right? So the bulwark, right? Yeah. So the we had bulwark, two things. Yeah. yeah. I was working with Bill. So me and Bill were working together. And I know Bill's been on the podcast and, you know, you gave him a little trouble, as I recall, which is deserved. Uh, he can take it. He's a big boy. But we, Bill and I worked together on what was, uh, well, first it was trying to recruit someone to primary Trump in 2018, 19, 20. I, I think we were clear eyed that that was probably going to be a, a fruitless endeavor, but we felt like it was worthwhile. Uh, and then how did Bill well do? Uh, <laughs> uh, Bill didn't do so great. We were shooting for Larry Hogan and Adam Kinzinger and a little, you know, some bigger names. I, I yeah. love Bill well, nothing against him, but uh, it didn't turn out well. But we felt like nice that was try, though. Yeah. Well, you know, it's worth a try, right? It's better to be in the fight than to not. Um, yes. So we tried that. It failed. Then we started Republican voters against Trump, which was, uh, you know, where we basically recruited Republicans to say in their own words why they were not going to vote for Joe Biden and, and, and ran a bunch of ads. Uh, and so that was on why the they're not going to vote for for Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, and why they were going to vote for Joe Biden. Many of them, some of them, were writing in still. Uh, and and so we we did that, and and you know, parallel to that, the bulwark kind of started, and I started writing for that. Now now I'm writing for the bulwark, quasi full time, and uh, and it's great. It's a I, I think that we have the benefit over there of being able to be completely politically homeless now. So we have no not, no <laughs> right. choice but to just give our totally unvarnished views of all all yeah. the rationalizations I talk about in the book about the political class about how you're angling you might have a job you know you want to get invited to a party I have no chance to be a White House press secretary ever again it's over for me and so let, so I can write about politics without pulling punches if you did it would be a very odd person who got elected <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you're ever the white house press secretary we're gonna have a very 
fucking interesting president. That's <laughs> well, all good. I can tell you. All right. Well, God, we're, we're, I'm praying for that. But, you well, know, that's good. In the, mean, that's in good. the, in the meantime, you... I'll just be able to write uh, unvarnished about the state of affairs. Okay. I, I There's so much I want to cover here. What, the D.C. political class is so interesting here because this is very much your book, a companion piece, both uh, to two Leibovich books. Yeah. Which is This Town and his newest number one both of which are number one New York Times bestsellers. The new one is Thank You for Your Servitude. It's very much parallels his Thank You for, I mean, you know Leibovich, and uh, this town is about D.C., and your book is very much about the, the flax in D.C., the political class uh, in D.C., and very much parallels what we read in this town. And then uh, Thank You for Your Servitude is about the Lindsey Grahams and the Rubios and the Cruises and everybody caving. And that's what happens with the D.C. political class in your book, which is all these people who hated Trump in the primaries end up working in one way or another for Trump. I almost thought about titling the book What This Town Has Wrought, but uh, I felt like that was going to be too too mean to Mark, uh, whose books were great and and the absolutely influential. It was a, that would be an homage. To yeah, Mark. yeah, an homage, but also a little bit, you know, it's, it wasn't really Mark Leibovich's fault. <laughs> oh, he was chronicling. <laughs> chronicling. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The traits I think that led people in the political class to go along with Trump, some of them, I, I think, cross boundaries, party boundaries, and were chronicled in this town. And I think some of them are very unique to the culture that has sprung up in Republican politics and the nihilism on the Republican side, which is which is frankly in direct contrast to the Democratic side, which, you know, in some ways is does self-harm by being almost too pure and idealistic. Well, it's nice to believe in something. It is. No, that's great. No, no, no. Idealism is good. I just think there's always, you know, balance, <laughs> balance in all things, you know, and in politics, you want to be idealistic and, you know, you want to win in order to be able to implement your ideas. And sometimes I, I the Democrats absolutely agree. go too far on one side and the Republican, meanwhile, they're competing against Republicans who uh, we've come to learn are like totally nihilist. I, I, Completely. I literally, literally believe in nothing except for uh, owning the libs, uh, seeing the people that they don't like be punished. And, uh, you know, this is manifesting in, in Ron DeSantis's rise. But, but, you know, I thought Mark's book comes at it from a reported view, you know, which has a ton of benefits, right? Because a lot of these people won't talk to me um, anymore uh, <laughs> since I'm, I've been cast out. And, and But mine, I think, why I really tried to focus on people that I knew you know, tries to get at right. the motives in a way that, that a reporter can't really, right? Can only speculate about it. And these are my former friends. Um, I can put them on the couch. Some of them volunteer to be put on the couch right. and just understand, you know, how it is that, that these people who, who know better and who have some good traits, I, you know, right? There's always this temptation to be like, oh, these guys are all sociopaths or bigots. And like, there's some sociopaths and bigots working around Trump, of course. But a lot of it is really just the DC political class that you, you write about this is, I want that, you know, beach house. I want my career. I want, and, and that's very disturbing to me. Uh, I went into politics because I wanted to do good for people. And I feel that a lot of people in DC do it for their career. And that's kind of it. And don't really kind of care whether what they're doing is honest and whether it's productive and whether it helps people. And there just seems to be, I find that about this, the town extremely troubling. 
and it's on both sides, of course, but it's much, much worse, I think, <laughs> on oh the Republican gosh. side. You know, just to, I mean, you went to American uh, America Rising after the election, right? Yeah, so I think that there are two elements. This part of it is the, the this town part of it is just like the structure of the town really does demand that you put on a jersey, right? And if one of the two teams' jerseys becomes completely corrupted, then it's very challenging, as we just discussed. I'm not going to be hired by a Democrat like to switch sides. That makes it more easy to rationalize things. And so the American Rising thing is a perfect example. So I'm at the RNC in 2012. I'd worked for John Huntsman, the most moderate candidate in the primary. I'm a mo- I was always a moderate Republican. Uh, in the general, I worked for That's Mitt right. Romney. That's right. You did after the 12, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and Mitt, Ra- yeah, Mitt Romney then I, I worked for in the general while at the RNC. Then we worked on the autopsy, right? Which was uh, arguably trying to reskin compassionate conservatism, basically. Uh, we could go mm-hmm. deeper on that if you want. So, that's where I am politically, those three things. But then for my career, it's like, okay, well, now after the campaign, I've got to go do something. And so, we started America Rising, which was this group that basically the whole point of it was to you know, do opposition research on Democrats and take down Democrats. And so you find yourself in a situation where I'm much closer politically to like a Heidi Heitkamp, you know, than I am to a Ted Cruz or a Ken Cuccinelli, right? But you pick a, you pick a team and you don't have to do this, but, but if you're ambitious in politics, you want to rise up the ranks, you have to work on behalf of your team. And so I tell that story of the first campaign after we started America Rising is that Virginia governor's race because it's the off year. So it's Ken Cuccinelli on one side, who's a homophobic, anti-immigrant bigot who I, who I loathe. I'm, I'm gay. I don't think we've covered that yet. Um, FYI, <laughs> the listeners, Terry McAuliffe's on the other side. You know, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit on the access politics side of things, but like a totally mainstream center left corporate Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Terry would like that description, but that's basically what he is. In any other world, I, you know, I don't, I'm neither voting for Terry or, you know, whatever, like if I'm just a Virginia resident, but because, you know, my consulting firm and, and this group that we started wants to succeed since the first race, it's like, okay, well, you sign yourself up for Cuccinelli. So I kind of review, like, how did I do that, right? How did I, as a gay man, go work for this homophobic bigot? And it's like, well, you know, you kind of just say, okay, this is just one. You know, you take one for the team here and and hopefully it'll help the, the firm grow. And, you know, down the line, we'll get clients that we like better. And that kind of banal kind of careerist rationalization. And I look back on that and I say, man, is that really that different from the people that, that rationalize going along with Trump because they worked in Republican politics? It's like, not really. It's a little different, right? The governor of Virginia and is you know, less influential than the leader of the free world. It's, you know, one-term governor. But still, the basics of the underlying rationalizations are the same. And when I went to interview a lot of my former colleagues about why they went along with Trump, a lot of them paralleled basically how I convinced myself that it was okay to work for Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, you know, a lot who's of these- Who's just awful. Who's just awful, right? Yeah. yeah. So, a lot of these people weren't true believers. They weren't just like these secret white nationalists just waiting for their moment. They're just careerists, right? And they didn't know what else to do. Essentially, well, you're, you're kind of being a hatchet man for Cuccinelli. Yeah, yeah, that was my job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah not kind of. Not, yeah, that's exactly what my job was. This is an interesting thing to me. So, uh, I took a plane from L- I went to Norman Lear's 100th birthday party thing out in L.A. And I'm taking a trip back to New York. And uh, I'm sitting with a guy uh, who was in radio and he, he did Hannity and he did uh, Rush and did that kind of stuff. He's a Republican. And uh, we got along. We got we got along, you know, and he wasn't he w- wasn't politically with them that much. He was more just a Republican. 
but we're in the car back. He gives me a ride back. <laughs> to you really bonded on this plane flight. We really did. He offered <laughs> me this ride. It was, I, you know, I'm a friendly guy. So anyway, so he has a driver who's from Poland. So I, of course, ask him, like, where, where in Poland he's from? Are there Ukrainian refugees there? Um, that kind of thing. And then we start talking about Tucker Carlson and him saying, like, Democrats tell us we should hate Putin, but why? And this is like the day before they invaded. And he says, well, he gets a lot of listeners or a lot of viewers. And I go, yeah, but it's evil. And he goes, well, you got to make money. <laughs> and I'm going like, really, really, really? Yeah. Do you have to sell yourself so short that I'm going to do shit in order to make a living? Are you that untalented? Are you that sad? And the answer to a lot of this, actually, Al, is that they're just not, they, they're not that courageous and they don't have the creativity and, and, and willingness to say, you know what, I can do something better with my life. And like, th this is what I found is that a lot There's of it so is much more about better stuff to do. Yeah. And especially the types of people that we're talking about, the, the people that I interview in this book, the people that are elite Republican political consultants at the top of their game, making lots, everybody was uh, well into the six figures that I interviewed for this book. Uh, all of them are co college graduates and smart. I would say this to them. I was like, there are plenty of other things you could do. You know, I, like there, there's no shortage of of job availability for that. To, it's a, it's different if you're the you know if you're the bottom person on the totem pole at an oil company and there's a spill, right? And it's like you got to put food on the table of your family. Like you have a lot more empathy for people like that who are maybe don't feel great about their job, but like absolutely need it. That is not any of the people in, in Washington. <laughs> like Washington <laughs> offers a plethora of opportunities for people, maybe not to make the same amount of money. You know, one of the quotes that I found most interesting, it was on background in the book from a friend of mine, because uh, I did some of these interviews before I knew it was going to be a book. Um, and so I wanted to respect that, that it was on background. But he uh, said, you know, this guy that used to be the head of the uh, chief of staff of the RNC, Mike Shields, that I write about, uh, who knew who I knew, knew Trump was terrible, had said it uh, to me, had, had said it to other people in private, mutual friends. Like, why did he go along to team up with with Donald Trump's campaign manager, Brad Parscale, on like a consulting firm to make all to make all this money. Why did he do that? He could have made money another way. The guy said, "Well, I don't, I don't know. He'd never been in a job where he'd made more of a more than a quarter million dollars a year before Trump won, and this was his moment to really make big bucks." I was like, only a quarter million? I mean, you can do pretty good on a quarter million still, right? Uh, I, there are plenty of opportunities for people like that. So, uh, some of this is greed, but some of it is also just this inertia and, and, and you have to summon the will within you to say, you know what? I can try something new. I can succeed at something new. I can change horses in, in the middle of my life. And a lot of people just didn't have the, have the balls for that, really. And you did that. Yeah, I did. I kind of fell into it. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to turn this into Chris Christie's podcast where I talk about how great I am, but I did that <laughs> in 2016. Part of it was because I just, I really thought it was crazy to think that Trump could possibly win. And, and I, he was also awful. And so to me, it was like the doing the right thing and the, and my career both lined up. You know, I signed up to stop this buffoon from becoming the president and then he becomes the president. And so, you know, I, then I go into a career crisis where I felt like, you know, I needed to do something different. And I, w I weighed everything. I, part of me is like, maybe I should just go do PR for a, 
you know, a pillow company. No, well, not my pillow, but, you know, a Clorox company, right? Like, maybe I should just go do PR for some harmless company nine to five and parent my child and coach the basketball team and whatever. Just quit this shit. But I was like, ah, I, you know, I felt like if he was going to run again, I really, I still wanted to kind of finish the job and, and decided to stay in and luckily met with Bill Crystal and worked and figured that out. So, but my, my example is just, just demonstrates that like, there are also there's a whole range of options during the Trump era for people besides becoming a never Trumper on MSNBC or going to work for Donald Trump, right? I, the, um, my my old colleague Sally Bradshaw, who was Jeb Bush's top advisor in Florida, she said, "Screw it." She opened a bookstore in Tallahassee and said, "I'm going to go live my life and do something different." And and you know you could work for a nonprofit, you could just work for some company, right? Like there are a million things to do, but this allure of DC, the allure of being in the mix. Like that part of it, this fact that you feel like you're on this team and you should see it out, all of that becomes much more powerful than I think I anticipated it being. I wasn't that surprised that the voters went for somebody like Trump because we all saw this coming, uh, as you as you know you brought up. Uh, but I was surprised that like literally 95 percent of these assholes all just went along with it too. Yeah, and that's how really really bad things happen. For example, just the cruelty of that administration, uh, the separation of families at the border. Unbelievable. I, did you read that Atlantic story about the separation? I have, yeah. It is so good. And I thought it was an, it was a companion kind of from the administrative state to my book. Like my book is all about the political hacks. But we should tell people what this is. It's an, an article in the Atlantic Monthly about just how this happened, the history of the separation of the kids. And it's really just horrible extremely well reported but the interesting thing about this is is interviewing all the people that worked at dhs and all these various places and there were really only three acutely evil people pushing for this it was stephen miller jeff sessions and, and another top person uh for working for sessions in dhs everybody else even up to john kelly and christy nielsen who i, I find terrible were at some level like trying to resist it or delay you know stall or delay it right and then there are all these administrative people up and down the line even some white hats some good actors who, who did things that turned out to be bad because they 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 didn't leak for example like the list of where all the kids had been they'd kept an excel sheet and they didn't leak it to the media for a while because they were worried that if they did then they would be outed you know and and target it right and so so the the big takeaway i have from the story is that across the entire government you know there like three evil people who really want to push for a policy end like that can make it happen only with the assistance of hundreds of people who are just regular humans right with good impulses and negative impulses trying to balance like their job and whether they should you know whether it's worth quitting over this and inertia kind of pushing them along towards let allowing this to happen and i think that that is like an important encapsulation really of the entire trump era that like yes there are sociopaths yes there are bigots yes there are people that want a donald trump autocracy but like they would have never been able to get even close to doing it if it wasn't for this other much larger class of people that rationalize their way into being participants. And that's what your book is exactly. all about. And you, from very personal experience, talk about now you even help in the confirmation process for Pruitt, who was pretty awful. 
putting it off the worst. Um, yeah. So here I am now in 20, uh, it's in the winter of 2016. Right. Um, and, uh, and I, I'm like, my career is over. I just, I'm getting targeted hate mail from all these Trumpers. Like people are telling my business partners, they should fire me. So a PR firm at the time. And, I, you know, I just, I'm in a dark place. I, I watched some movies about death over and over, over and over again. Um, but uh, I, I get this call from Pruitt, who I'd known, you know, from a past life because he had endorsed Jeb. And he said, hey, and Pruitt had been an ever-trumper. And he's like, hey, I want to be the EPA chief. Will you like help prep me for this and give me PR advice? And, and honestly, it was like just this lifeline of, I don't know what else to do. And this is what I've done all my life. And so, yeah. And so, for a few weeks, I actually, I just, I think it's important to understand, even though I hated Trump more than anybody, more than you, Al, I promise, like, I hated him. I, mm. Like, you get the <laughs> wheels turning of your ego, right? And you start to say, okay, well, I know how to do this. I can help prep this guy. I can think about the hard questions he's going to get, you know, you know, all the staffer stuff. Mm. I can, I can, you know, work the reporters for him. You start to go, okay, I'm useful. Like, my, my life isn't over. My career isn't over. I can, I can keep f- figuring out how to work in this world. And, and I did that for a little while. He gets confirmed. And then, you know, like turns into a monster. I, I guess he was always he a monster. He was kind of a monster. monster. His record in, in Oklahoma was terrible. Yeah. His record in Oklahoma is terrible. So, obviously, again, should have seen it coming. Don't do your due diligence. But this is how you justify it. And then, you know, a certain a few months into the administration, I finally said to his chief of staff, like, I can't, I can't give this guy advice anymore. Like, I think he should quit. Meanwhile, he's angling to replace Sessions as the DOJ to run cover for Trump. Um, I just, a sm- I, I, can you just imagine both the narcissism and the corruption to, to look at what was happening with Sessions and be like, now I want to get in to be attorney general to help kill the Russian investigation. And this is how debased this guy was. But yeah, I, I, I did help him and, and I, you know, get confirmed. I'm, we're going to confirmed without me, but I, I you know, I, I think that it's important to understand why I did that, which was just this compartmentalization and this career element of like, you have to do it before I finally, it's like the mob, you know, you, they keep, they try to pull you back in and, and, you know, you finally have to have the internal gumption to be like, no, okay, no, this is over. It's finally over. And for me, it happened sadly, even after Trump was in there a little bit into 2017. Well, that's what's really great about this book, which is how honest it is. And, and also because it's honest, you actually learn something about human beings and how this, how this happened as opposed to Chris Christie's book. I hear Jared Kushner's book is also super honest, you know, a lot of, a lot of self-reflection coming there. He's so hard on himself. (laughs) How I got that $2 billion from the Saudis. All all we had to, you know, I, I feel so, terrible because my father-in-law gave them some top secret documents <laughs> and i got the two billion <laughs> i feel terrible about that um i want to want to ask you well, speaking of pruitt about environmental stuff just because at one point you talk about the oppressive waters of the u.s rule which was dumb i swear this is what you say Right. This is yeah. on page one okay. oh. Wow. You've, you've, I have like eight conservative policies that I that I just confirmed that I genuinely support throughout the book, and you've chosen you've chosen the most obscure one to try to challenge me on. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, the waters of the U.S. is basically it's an EPA thing, and it says the EPA can regulate navigable waters that flow into other nav- uh, navigable waters 
and controlling the pollution. Farm Bureau is against it, and it's a big issue for them because they want to run off their fertilizer into the body of water next to them, which flows into ultimately the Mississippi, which goes down to the Gulf of Mexico. And there's this huge dead zone there because of nitrogen, which is endangering the coast and which actually endangers, makes New Orleans more vulnerable. This is an actually an important rule. I, um, I, I, I concur with you that there should be a clean water rule and that there should be some sort of jurisdiction over navigable waters. Uh, the WOTUS rule, which was uh, controversial among the Farm Bureau and crowd, uh, crowd that was oh, put into place the during Bureau. the yeah, yeah <laughs> that was put in place during the during the Obama administration, like expanded the definition of navigable waters significantly to include like random roadside ditches and you know little ponds that are on people's farmland and you know just kind of expanded the the, the fingers of the federal government beyond what was sensible and, you know, what helped our, our little family farmers, you know, give us the nutrients that we need. So, that's all. That's all I was saying. It was just a, it was a little overreach. You can have good federal regulations that are well-intended that go a little overboard. And they well, you, but the, back EPA, a little bit. the EPA cut them an enormous amount of, and, and the DO, and the Department of Agriculture cut farmers an amazing, listen, I, one out of six jobs in Minnesota is tied to agriculture. I'm very good friends with it, Kevin Papp, the head of the Farm Bureau. In my second race, they didn't endorse the Republican because I'm such a good friend of theirs. There you go. But you, t- but you told them they were wrong on WOTUS? Yeah. And they respected that. The first time I got the uh, friend of the farmer shield, which is a, you get presented, uh, Kevin Papp gives me this. Uh, we're in my office taking a picture of him giving me this thing. I said, Kevin, this means a lot to me. And he says, it's just the way you voted. (laughs) (laughs) And so, which I thought was hilarious. And then I just gave him shit about that forever. And then we were really good friends. Well, I I think we can agree to disagree on the extent of the WOTUS regulations. I I take your feedback. I'm happy to read any materials you'll provide. While we're on on the environment thing, I do think that it's important to just mention, because this is something that you get a lot of times from, you know, when you hear the argument about, oh, think the Republicans have always been evil and nothing ever changed. The environment is another area that I I do care about. I'm from Colorado. I obviously believe in climate change. I think that there is a meaningful difference in McCain, McCain and 08. The campaign platform for that Republican general election campaign was in support of cap and trade, right? And, and I think sure. that there's very reason, good reason to believe that had McCain beaten Obama, he didn't even come close, that that might have been the, the deal that he cut right away. And then at the time, there was, again, there was a minority of Republicans within the Senate, but there were a minority year old pal, Lindsey Graham and mine, um, you know, I've drank some Chardonnay well, with, uh, yep. but he would have supported that and some other people. And so, like I, that is a meaningful difference to go from that period where there is a element within the Republican Party, like me, that think there should be conservation rules, that think we should uh, address climate change. You know, doing so maybe 
sometimes differently than what the you know far left environmentalists would want to do, but but wanting to work in good faith to do something versus what you have now, which is it's a litmus test now to pretend like climate change isn't even happening, right? Like there's just no element of this at all left within the party. You know what changed all of it, of course, was Citizens United. I think Citizens United was a big part of the change. A huge so I, part, a huge part, because the Koch brothers bought the Republican Party. I don't, I'm skeptical of that. Can I, oh. can I offer a, a different view? I, mean, uh, I, I do think that the Koch brothers' influence is, is noteworthy, particularly on policy issues. But I think you go, have to go back to your old Rush Limbaugh book, Al. I think that the source of this stuff is, is very much bottom up. And I'm, I'm, I think that if you use Donald Trump as an example in 2016, and he had no money, he spent no money, he ran no ads. Like he, what he did was channel the grievances and the conspiratorial mindset and the hatreds of the Republican base that some of it is, that came naturally and some of that was which was stoked by right wing media. I remain pretty skeptical that like a bunch of TV ads ran by the Koch brothers. I think it can have an influence in local elections for sure. But, but that's, that like changes local election the means like uh, uh, for U.S. Senate. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm, what I'm talking about. I've seen I saw Jerry Moran back off on stuff because he OK, you're going to be primaried and the Koch brothers are going to drop 10 million on you. There were no, there were no successful primaries though, run by the Koch brothers against people based on climate stuff. Because no, because but Jerry backed off. Yeah. I mean, do, is, was Jerry backing off because of the Koch brothers or did Jerry back off because every time he went and had a little town hall in Topeka, you know, everybody there was talking to him about how climate change is a myth and George Soros is funding everything on the left and that, uh, you know, if he doesn't go along with every conspiracy, I, they're going to find agree. Chris it, Kobach to beat him. I just, I, 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 and it's a chicken and egg element, but I, I think that, yeah. that's kind of where I went. But, you know, Trump didn't have to run ads because he, he had, hour one hour and a half ads on cnn constantly <laughs> that didn't hurt <laughs> right that did, that did, it certainly it certainly didn't hurt i remember i had a i don't think i included this in the book i had a screaming match with zucker and some other people at the head of cnn oh, during great. the campaign yeah during the campaign <laughs> well, it, it does nothing but just to show you like our position not that jeb is perfect or great or whatever but uh, i we had we had one of our research nerds do an analysis and cnn uh, of of the times that Jeb Bush got mentioned on CNN, it was like eighty percent or seventy percent in relation to responding to what Trump had said. <laughs> yeah, it was like seventy percent response to what Trump had said, twenty percent polling, you know, eight percent gaffes, random gaffes he had on the campaign trail, and like two percent, you know, one mention of anything else that we did. It was just like that was it was a totally enveloped the entire race. So it wasn't even just the speeches, right? It was the fact that. The news cycle just was totally dominated by whatever he had farted out on Twitter. Carrying him constantly. <laughs> and what was interesting, and I just, I just did a podcast, just recorded one with Sarah Silverman, and we were just talking about how Trump is a good stand-up comedian. Yeah. He's a guy who has no actual real good, uh, no sense of humor and doesn't ever laugh, but he <laughs> riffs and he can talk forever. And that's a talent. That's why Zucker ran it. I remember cam I was campaigning for Hillary during the thing, and she said that she and Huma, when they're on the road, would want to watch it because they were so they th it was so entertaining. 
they'd want to watch that's Trump. disturbing <laughs> I, I, I never, he never he never clicked for me i don't know what that is but i get that some people but like it, was it fascinating. But yeah yeah i never it never happened Wasn't it? never happened for me i mean i guess it was kind of fascinating right that the, a major party nominee would just be up there like talking about like random tv celebrities uh botox <laughs> regiments or like whatever like that was not normal but, would- but i i, I it, it wasn't interesting to me but he was good at the crowd this the crowd part of it is also a massive key to his success that people underestimate, which is why he keeps doing those rallies. Part of it is his ego. But the other part is he needs to hear what the people want because he doesn't believe any of this shit or he doesn't believe anything. He's a total nihilist and he just cares about Donald Trump, you know, people liking him. And so he's riffing and listening and listening to what worked. And that's why, you know, the Muslim ban happened. Honestly, we build the wall happened. Yeah. If the crowd was cheering for, like, work with the Democrats on bipartisan solutions to get things done, that's what Donald Trump would have done, right? It's not like he had this deep ideology that pushed him to this, but that is part of the bottom-up element. He had some instincts. He did. He had some real instincts about what people, about hating foreigners, about, you know what he had an instinct for and you were working with Jeb? And he had an instinct and he was, I think, the only candidate in it who attacked w for iraq and just for 9-11 i remember when jeb in the debate said don't you remember my brother standing on the rubble i remember when he said standing on the rubble that's your (laughs) yeah (laughs) the bullhorn well your brother was standing on the fucking rubble yeah the, the 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 Clinton administration told you guys that bin Laden was the number one threat and you did you ignored that. And then in South Carolina, he just which is a state with huge military, you know, uh, retirees, et cetera, and bases. He just goes out in that debate and says the war in Iraq was terrible mistake. And not one other of the Republican candidates would ever say anything like that and the response was yeah yeah you're absolutely right about that and I, he even dabbled went so far in that south carolina to kind of dabble in some 9-11 conspiracy and it was like trump in word salad so you know there was like some depending on how you interpreted it there could have been right. a little inside job accusation at, at, at jeb there uh but um jesus christ but yeah wow. and crazy <laughs> stuff so it combines this kind of crazy stuff with having that reptilian instinct you talked about about where people were on this and you're and i think that it's another huge mistake i, I wrote about that 2012 autopsy that we talked about and i was like you know had a responsible conservative populist in 2016 or in, in 2012, run against Romney or in 2016, that said, okay, let's review kind of some of the orthodoxies around these forever wars. You know, let's like take a look at how we can revitalize manufacturing rural America. It's a counterfactual. I don't know. But like maybe something like that could have landed because you are right. Uh, he was where the base was on that. He knew it, I think, partially because of being, you know, his own instincts, but partially because he's being, he's out there, you know, talking to these voters. And I, you know, it was a canary in the coal mine for me. One of my Trumpy uncles, you know, said to me before when I took the Jeb job, he was like, you gotta, he, he has to go out against the war. He's like, the people are mad about the wars. And kind of in this political class bubble, Republican bubble, you know, that was not shared because not most of us, you know, didn't deal with the sacrifices of the war, to be honest. We were protected from it um, and so didn't feel the kind of anger that was out there, even among Republican voters uh, personally. 
And I think that he he channeled that, and that was absolutely right. And, and just one other thing on this, which goes to you know show that maybe something possibly could have happened within the Republican Party that would have pivoted to a good place is if you look at the 2016 election, a lot of voters looked at Trump and thought he was the moderate option over Hillary because he had the heterodox views on Iraq and on Social Security. And so, you know, while we, those of us in the establishment, were pushing, you know, moderation on immigration and climate where people didn't agree with us, conceivably, I think a more responsible person could have turned the party a little bit more on economic and foreign policy issues while remaining culturally conservative. That wouldn't have been a party that appealed to me at all. But, I, but it would have been a better place to land. And I think that's the only hope for, honestly, for the Republican Party is to land someplace like that, because it's never going back to, to McCainism. I just think that the Republican Party has ceased to be a party that participates in good faith in democracy. I, I'm very frightened. I agree that that's the more likely outcome. I just mean that when people ask me, what's the hope? That my book offers no hope, right? It's a very, <laughs> it's a very bleak book. Like usually these books have a last chapter that's like, and here's how the Republican Party gets better. Well, those I don't have last that. chapters are always pathetic. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have that. In my book. I told my editor, I was like, this isn't one of those books. But I, I think that, yeah, I agree with you. Right now, it's just a totally nihilist, anti-democratic, owning the libs. That's all that drives it. But I just mean, for any hope to come, the people that are trying to change the party are all trying to make it like go back to George H.W. Bush. And like George H.W. Bush has never walked in through that door again. You know, like if the party's going to come back, it will have to be this kind of Boris Johnsonism, you know, sort of a little more economically moderate, moderating and, and anti-globalist, uh, which isn't a great party for me, but whatever. Like that, that's the only kind of path. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Tim Miller. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with Tim Miller. Trump tapped into resentment. Yes. And resentment that's real. You know, if you're from Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, and you go to Washington, D.C., and you look around and you see these beautiful hotels and restaurants and uh, obviously the government buildings, but just the affluence there. And you say, this isn't happening in Wilkes Bar. And so when they talk about elites, 
they're talking about the Washington political class, the self-serving Washington political class. And so that resentment is what Trump tapped into. Then, of course, when he was there, he fed that class. <laughs> and, you know. And here's and the scary and sad part about all this, Al, and this isn't part of what this is now up to present day, but like, I don't, I just, in theory, there could have been some responsible Republican leaders that, that actually wanted to, to address that resentment. But like, that's not what's happening. That's not what Donald Trump is. Like these people, Steve Bannon, none of them, they don't care about these people. It's all a con. You know, the anti-vax thing is a con. The January, the, the, the uh, election fraud thing is a con. So instead of actually trying to address the Wilkes bar, you know, person's legitimate resentment, uh, and, 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 and make their lives better. The Republican party now is just, you know, feeding them a load of bullshit about election fraud hysteria and, you know, whatever the latest, you know, conspiracy is, whatever the latest concern is about, you know, the next caravan. You would hope that the Democrats could be able to take advantage of that to go into some of these places. And, you know, maybe that's the Fetterman model. I don't know. But like that is the part that's the scariest about all this is they're just radicalizing all these people further, you know, by giving them new resentments rather than trying to address, you know, I, I think some legitimate grievances. You know, and the source, I'm reading a book now about uh, college and where we went wrong. And where we started going wrong was Ronald Reagan exploiting what happened at Berkeley to start charging more and more tuition kids, these kids are getting a free ride. You know, the best thing that happened to us was the GI Bill and all these guys being able to take, go to college and expanding college. And of course, that was basically white guys who fought, right? What happened was- Not entirely. Just, not entirely, but mainly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 90, 90%, 95%. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I, it was, that's that was just the case. That was the case. And that's why all the executives, et cetera. And I remember right after that, that people were going criticizing that the, the GI Bill saying like, oh, you're going to have a lot of hillbillies going to college. Well, they did. And they became executives of big companies. <laughs> and, uh, and it was great. And then at a certain point, you know, Reagan ran against Berkeley to become governor and they started raising tuitions. And that's why we have all this debt. And that has fucking killed the very people who have all this resentment now. Yeah, we could do a whole hour on the count. I mean, the anti-elite element has certainly been there since Reagan and is certainly BS and is on hyperdrive right now. I, I don't think that the, the elites have frankly helped by continuing to pump student loans, <laughs> like pump free, you know, free money student loans and let these colleges feel like they can like build all these buildings and hire all these administrators and do everything because they'll eventually get bailed out. I don't know if that really helped either, um, nor the cloistered coastal elites uh, who, um, I, you know, I think have separated themselves from what's happening in a lot of parts of the country, not just the white working class, but the black and, and Hispanic working class. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yep. I think that there's problems to, you know, that there's blame to go around on that front, but, but certainly now, you know, we're at this place where that's very potent and that the Republican party is almost entirely animated by 
channeling yeah. those grievances. Yep. Well, uh, let me see. When I, 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 oh, you're gay. I am gay. We, I mentioned yeah. that in passing earlier. Okay. Uh, but, you know, there was, you, you were working for Republicans who were just against. <laughs> oh, we're going back to me being terrible. Got it. Oh, yeah. We had to circle back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, that was, uh, you know, a conflict for you, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it was the most embarrassing part to both write about and to just go back and relive. I, I, there was one, but I felt like I had to do it again so that I could. Again, this is an unbelievably honest book. Yeah. I, yeah. So I there. had to do it both so I could understand because I, I, I hope, we, I hope that it would help the reader understand why, you know, people continue to go along with Trump. Uh, and I hope that it gave me some credibility when I started, you know, taking out the bazooka to my old colleagues that, um, you know, that, that, uh, that the reader would know that I was, uh, I, I meant it. Um, and that I wasn't just, you know, kind of, uh, full of, full of shit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the one example I think is the starkest that I went back. I had an interview with the Advocate magazine in mm-hmm. 2009, I guess it was after the McCain campaign. And, and at that time, I was like, I, kind of, I guess, the most prominent out Republican. I can Mel, who is still in politics. Melman had come out. Um, but like there just weren't really, there were a lot of Republicans in Washington who are gay, who like worked in, you know, policy jobs or behind the scenes jobs. It was like a spokesperson. And so she just interviewed me about like how I, how I dealt with this. And I went back and read the interview and she asked me about when McCain had slipped, you might remember this in, I guess, 07, he'd slipped in a hardball interview and said that, yeah, whatever, if they want to have a private ceremony, that's fine. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and his consultant comes during the commercial break, comes off from off stage and it's like, Senator, I think you just kind of endorsed gay marriage. You're running in a Republican primary. And he had to backtrack and say, well, you know, I mean, it's private. We should, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't acknowledge it through the laws. And he corrected himself. Mm-hmm. She asked me how I felt when that happened. And I told her in this interview, I said, I, I was mad at him for, for screwing up because I was working for him and I, or I was about to work for him and I wanted him to win. Uh, and I was mad and that wasn't a tenable position. And I just, just rereading that interview, I just, like, how, A, embarrassing is that, but how great of an insight is it into the warped kind of mindset? It was of, truthful. Yeah, of somebody in politics. Like, that, I was being truthful to that interviewer uh, then, and I, sh- I should have been embarrassed about it. I wasn't then, but I, I am now. But, it, but it's like, that is this mindset you get into if you are, you know, so focused on winning and so uh, committed to the game of politics, and that is what is animating you, and that's what's getting you excited then, you know, it's easy to rationalize this stuff. You're just like, well, we got to do what we got to do to win. Like, we got to have these, we got to run these crazy ads about the caravans coming in or, you know, we got to put on our red Donald Trump hat and do the build the wall Legos because that's what the primary voters want. You know, it's funny. Uh, in 2007, when I announced I was going to run for the Senate, so I had some supporters come to my house to tell them I was going to do this. And there is this uh, gay couple. The guy who was very politically active said to me, just don't say you're for a same-sex marriage. <laughs> that, was advice. that was his advice. And I said, but I'm for it. And he said, well, okay, well, don't say it. And I said, if I'm asked about it, I'm going to say I am because I am. And I was the first Senate candidate to come out for that. 
because I was for it. <laughs> well, I appreciate your leadership in that. Honestly, I, I, that might have sounded sarcastic, but I meant it sincerely. I really do. Uh, and uh, and I do Minnesota. Th- yeah, and I do think that we, um, you know, and and that's actually I just. Uh, that's was part of my rationalization and I'm not endorsing this at the time, by the way, but, but you know, I'm, I'm out there going, well, Obama's out there, you know, kind of dancing around on this. So why yeah. should I feel bad myself? Right. And, uh, and so uh, everyone, but if everyone makes that rationalization, if everyone's like, well, I'm just one cog in here, why should I care? I should try to win. Then, you know, you end up with a result that like, like we did with Trump. And so I, I think obviously in retrospect, frankly, Obama could have been for gay marriage in 08 and would have won anyway. I mean, he, he crushed John McCain. Right. It's like, and he obviously was for it. It's like this notion that that was, even at the time, you know, that was political strategists like being overly cautious and, and caring more about the game. And as you, you know, obviously you became a senator. So that uh, you bucked that advice and, and demonstrated that it was okay. And I think that it, uh, you know, we'll never know for sure, but I think that Obama could have done it in 08. Well, we made a lot of progress there. And, um, <laughs> but Clarence Thomas wants to revisit it. He does. It'll be interesting to see um, whether there can be 10 Republican votes for uh, for it would it would be, I guess, codifying the Doma repeal, not the Obergefell, but still it'd be something. Um, and I, and I, I hope that the Democrats make them vote on it, even if there isn't. Well, 10. Tammy Baldwin has put a bill. Out yeah, yeah, she has. And there have been, I guess, four. There were originally five Republicans who said they were for it. And then Ron John backed off. He's, he's taking the rare backwards flip-flop on gay marriage, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. Ron, Ron Johnson said he'd be for Tammy's bill and then got a little pressure, I don't know, or whatever. And he recently backtracked. So now Ron Johnson has a rare distinction of being of the year 2022 reverting to becoming anti-gay marriage. <laughs> <laughs> he's amazing, isn't he? Yes. And I think Mandela should run on that, by the way. I think Democrats have been, there are certain social issues the Democrats candidates should maybe still be scared of, uh, or at least scared of going, you know, too far overboard and turning off some voters. But I think that obviously gay marriage, I think things like that 21 year gun, you know, age limit. I think that on abortion, uh, of course, I think that this is maybe a first moment in a while where some of these Democratic candidates should feel like they should be prosecuting this case against Republicans instead of scared of it. You know, uh, when Clarence Thomas put out his opinion, uh, he said that they should revisit uh, Obergefell right. and, and Casey, right? Yeah. And so I immediately said, it called for us to put on the floor uh, bills saying everyone has the right to use contraception and the same-sex marriages are the right of people. And uh, I did call Tammy, and she put that on the floor. Smart. And I think that it's, a, it's a, obviously a winner to campaign on. Yeah, I love that Johnson is flip-flop. That's great. Boy, we got to beat him. You know what his two uh, most important words in his business career were? I do. His father-in-law. <laughs> oh, got it. <laughs> put him in the business. Got it. Yeah, well, you know. Up from his bootstraps. His father-in-law carried him up from his bootstraps. I'm going to Wisconsin in a couple of weeks. To you, sir? I think Mandela is, is a really impressive guy, Mandela yep. Barnes, who's running against him. And, um, you know, the Republicans oh, are going to... Uh, 
Nelson Mandela. Also impressive. That's very impressive. (laughs) Bold statement for me. I'm sure that that he would appreciate my endorsement. Um, Very uh, impressive. Especially after talking about all my failings. But um, (laughs) but uh, no, Mandela Barnes, and I and I think that a lot of folks have said that that's not winnable. And I I disagree with that. Mandela is a little bit more, I think, progressive than some of the other candidates have run there. But uh, he's a smart guy, and so I'm glad you're I'm glad you're going there to campaign. And I think that there are ways with maybe out going overboard on some of the stuff that's hurt Democrats, like the defund the police thing, which I don't think was particularly helpful, but there are ways to do that was to hit on some of these. Insane to insane, say that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there are ways to hit on these cultural issues. I like the gay marriage. I, even in Wisconsin, you know, in Wisconsin, being against gay marriage is putting you on the, on the negative side of the ledger with the median voter. And so I, I think that that's conceivably a winnable one. I really, really, really enjoyed the book. It was very funny. So High praise. Yeah, coming from me, from pro, God coming damn. from a pro, coming from a pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, not as funny as, as my books. Yeah, sure. You know, but I'm trying. I'm an amateur. That's right. No, maybe we can right. do a little routine. You know, take it on the mm, road. No, not quite. I don't. I don't <laughs> not work, quite that funny. I don't work with gay people. Okay, uh, but what if I'm the straight man? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's a, a thing. See. That's funny. Could be a bit there. There. I'll be the straight man. <laughs> I'm the straight man. You're the gay man. <laughs> and now we've got an act. I'm working on it. Okay. Oh. And when, when, I, when I flesh it out, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. 
the problem. This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.